Listening to Criminal Broads, the podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I'm your host, Tori Telfer, author of Lady Killers, Deadly Women Throughout History, which is how I got myself into this whole genre. And I'm so pleased to have you here. This is our last episode of 2018, so I wanted to put a couple housekeeping things up top and we will get to the story very shortly. First of all, My brother, John, who's an artist, made us some Criminal Broads postcards, and they are so cool that it's kind of like, kind of looks like Carmen Sandiego, if you remember her, um, in handcuffs. So I'm sending them out to anyone who leaves the podcast a review this month. You can leave it on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, wherever you listen. If you'd like to get a postcard with a compliment (laughs) written on the back, just leave a review and take a screenshot and email it to me, criminalbroads at gmail.com, or uh, DM me on Instagram, criminalbroads on Instagram, send me a link, whatever. Just let me know you left a review, and um, send me your address, and I will send you a postcard just in time for the holiday seasons. And if you've already left a review and are like, wait, I want a postcard, that's great. Just uh, do the same and send me the link to your old review. All right, what's next? I just wanted to sort of say that in 2019, I have some exciting things lined up for Criminal Broads. So, I'm, you know, stay tuned. (laughs) Stay tuned, get excited, etc. I started this podcast in May, so it's been around for about eight months. Um, If it were a child, it would be almost ready to be born. And, you know, it's been so fun. I really feel like I have the best listeners ever. Maybe everyone feels that way, but you have all just been so generous and kind, and I've loved every time you contact me on Instagram or email. Like, it's just been a real pleasure. The suggestions are so good. Um, the reviews, I love reading them. So thank you. Thank you so much. In May, I was but a, but a young girl who had a microphone, and I didn't even have a pop filter yet. And I didn't realize that you can't just record in a big empty room because it's going to sound kind of crazy. And I was making all sorts of mistakes, and I'm still probably making all sorts of mistakes, but um, I like to think that I'm improving, and I hope to be improving much more in 2019 and bringing all sorts of new kind of exciting things to the pod. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening. It is really cool, and I notice, and I really appreciate it. Okay, last but certainly not least, this episode today was a request from my reader and listener, Patty. Now, I can't, you know, I don't like to play favorites, but I will say that Patty has read my book, Lady Killers, more times than anyone else, I think. More times than my mom, more times than anyone related to me, more times than my husband. So... Patty, this one's for you. If anyone was going to get their request accepted, it was you. This woman, who Patty suggested, 
is fascinating. Now, there are a lot, she's a female poisoner, spoiler alert, and there are a lot of female poisoners throughout history. And in fact, they all sort of start to blur together when you research them. You know, one husband dies, the other husband dies, arsenic, 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 etc. But so when I'm researching them and choosing who to write about or podcast about, I like to look for the thing that makes them pop out at me. And it can be something so small, like a little reaction they had or a weird little hobby they have. But, you know, there's always that thing that makes them jump into sharp relief as individuals. So it's not like, oh, this is just another poisoning grandma. It's like, oh, this is a woman who did XYZ for XYZ reasons and was psychopathic or was uh, particularly pitiful or whatever. So that happened with this woman too. But the thing that stuck out to me about her was, as you'll see, um, sort of an absence of something instead of a presence. So anyway, let's get started. We are headed to the state of Alabama in the 1950s. And a squadron of policemen are just pulling up to a restaurant where there's a red-headed waitress inside who has been worried about this moment for years. On March 9th, 1956, police showed up at the Seabreeze restaurant in Mobile, Alabama, to arrest a 49-year-old red-haired waitress named Rhonda Bell Martin. As they hurried her, still in her white waitressing uniform, into their squad car, she told them, I don't know why you're doing this. There's nothing to it. Okay, so her husband was in the hospital, and yeah, he was getting worse and worse, and not that it was any of their business, but he was about 20 years younger than her. But since when was having a sick young husband a crime? Rhonda didn't realize that Alabama police had been watching her for two months by the time they arrested her. She had no idea that a plainclothes policeman had been eating at the Seabreeze restaurant for weeks, ordering his coffee and hash browns directly from her. And she certainly didn't know that the arsenic and the strands of the hair of the sick young husband was only the tip of the iceberg of evidence they were compiling against her. In fact, no one knew it at the time, but that statement from Rhonda, I don't know why you're doing this, there's nothing to it, would end up being very telling. Of course, Rhonda must have known exactly why the cops were arresting her. A woman doesn't poison her family for almost two decades without realizing that she's kinda sorta breaking the law. But there she was, driving away in the squad car, insistent that she had no idea what was going on and nothing to say about it anyway. Rhonda Bell Martin was pretty good at waitressing. She made $9 a week, working part-time from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. every day, and each day she took home about $2 more in tips. She was also good at finding a bargain, and never wore a dress that cost more than $10 or shoes that cost more than 5 She was good at finding husbands, too. She'd had five of them by the time all was said and done. 
but she had one skill that stood out above all the rest. Rhonda Bell Martin was very good at killing her daughters. Rhonda was born in 1907 in Loosedale, Mississippi, but her family moved to Mobile, Alabama when she was very young. Her father operated a sawmill, and her mother ran a boarding house. When Rhonda was 12, her father deserted their family, and this, understandably, shook her to her core. When Rhonda was 15, she fell in love with one of her mother's boarders, a handsome young man named W.R. Alderman, who worked in the upholstery business. She was still 15 when she married him and 19 when she divorced him. She was 21 when she married husband number two, her next-door neighbor, George Garrett. Rhonda and George ended up having five beautiful daughters, Mary Adelaide, Emma Jean, Judith, Carolyn, and Ellen Elizabeth. Not one of them would live to see their 12th birthday. One fateful day in 1934, Four-year-old Mary Adelaide asked her mom for a glass of water. There was nothing strange about a four-year-old girl asking her mother for a drink, but in that moment, something came over Rhonda, something that she would never be able to explain. Instead of turning on the faucet, Rhonda poured her daughter a glass of milk and stirred in a spoonful of ant poison. I just got the urge, she'd say later, and suddenly... I did it. Mary Adelaide died quickly. Of pneumonia, Rhonda said. Rhonda and George had another child, Emma Jean, and in 1937, when Emma Jean was three, Rhonda pulled out the milk and the ant poison and did the whole thing all over again. Emma Jean died of a heart attack, Rhonda said. She got pregnant again and had Judith, and two years later, she poisoned her. That same year, Rhonda also poisoned a glass of her husband's whiskey and watched him grow so sick that he stumbled around outside in the yard, confused and agonized. Judith and her father both died in 1939. Rhonda blamed pneumonia for George's death and said that jaundice was what had stolen her Judith from her. George was in his mid-30s when he died, and Judith was just one year old. The next year, Rhonda killed her six-year-old, Carolyn, claiming she died of a throat disorder. She had only one daughter left at this point, 11-year-old Ellen Elizabeth. Perhaps realizing that she was running out of victims, Rhonda took her time killing Ellen, poisoning her so slowly that the little girl wasted away over the course of a whole year, gradually losing the use of her limbs. Rhonda watched her deterioration with fascination and, after she died, blamed a stomach disorder. She buried George and his five daughters in a section of her local cemetery called The Last Supper. The process of killing them had taken almost ten years. With her daughters gone, Rhonda Bell turned to matricide and flirtation. She poisoned her mother's coffee in 1944, turning her into an invalid and killing her over the course of an entire year, and she began flirting with one of her regular customers at the restaurant where she was waitressing. The customer, a man named Talmadge Gibson, finally agreed to marry her after one of their signature drunken binges. He regretted it almost immediately, but tried to make the best of it since they were now legally bound. Rhonda wasn't all bad, he thought. She had a great personality, and she was very intelligent. The thing he didn't like was that she wouldn't explain why, exactly, all of her children were dead. She even kept two of their photos on the mantelpiece. Sometimes he'd catch her sitting there, staring at them. 
Sometimes she'd say, offhandedly, that she wished they were still alive. Rhonda and Talmadge divorced after four months, and Rhonda took a job at a gas plant, which is where she met Claude Martin, husband number four. Claude was a widower, his wife had died in a car accident, and he had several grown children, including a handsome 21-year-old son named Roland, who had spent some time in the Navy. Rhonda settled into her fourth marriage by taking out a healthy insurance policy on Claude and regularly dropping two teaspoons of ant poison into his coffee. When he finally breathed his last, in 1951, she collected several thousand dollars from his life insurance policy and immediately spent $400 of it on a corpse. She wanted to move the body of Claude's first wife into the last supper section of the cemetery, her favorite section, so that Claude could rest beside his original bride for all eternity. It was what her dear Claude would have wanted, she said. With the rest of the money, she bought whiskey and began seducing her stepson. Roland's sisters had thought Rhonda was okay when she was married to their father, but now that she was pouring whiskey down the throat of their young brother, they had a real problem with her. Their disapproval escalated into shock and horror when they learned that Rhonda was planning to marry Roland, despite the fact that Claude had only been dead for eight months, despite their 20-age difference, and despite the whole stepmom-stepson thing. She got him drunk before she married him, one sister said later. He never would have married her if she hadn't kept him drunk or doped up all the time. Rhonda didn't know this at the time, but marrying a stepson was very much illegal in Alabama. Five years later, after she was arrested, authorities considered charging her with incest, only to discover that, technically, Roland was actually never her stepson in the first place. See, when Rhonda married Roland's dad, Claude, she was still technically married to Talmadge, and so, if you were keeping track of her matrimonial hijinks, this made her guilty of bigamy, but innocent of incest. When her judge learned about all this, he said, That's the biggest mix-up I have ever heard in all my years on the bench. Of course, by the time all this was happening, bigamy was the least of Rhonda's worries. Rhonda and Roland got married, and Rhonda gushed over her handsome, blonde, sailor husband, but soon the old urge that she couldn't explain began to course through her again. She'd gone for four whole years without poisoning anybody, which was quite impressive for her, but by 1955, she began dosing Roland with her old standby, ant poison. Roland sickened quickly and ended up in a local hospital where he got a bit better and was sent home to recover, but at home he mysteriously started getting worse again, and eventually he ended up at a U.S. veterans hospital in Biloxi, Mississippi, where he remained for nine months gradually losing the use of his limbs. Rhonda would visit him multiple times a week, bearing little gifts, even bringing him a miniature Christmas tree at one point. When Roland's hands began to paralyze, he gave his wedding ring to Rhonda, saying that he wanted her to wear it. When Rhonda was interrogated, later, she wore a wedding ring on her left hand and another one on her right. It wasn't until Roland's doctors at the Veterans Hospital learned that he'd spent some time in a previous hospital that they started to suspect he might have been poisoned. They sent a few strands of his hair out for testing, and their fears were confirmed when toxologists found arsenic in the strands. The doctors took this information straight to the Alabama state officials who began looking into Rhonda Bell and quickly found out that she had more family members in the last supper section of that Alabama graveyard than any reasonable person should. 
When Alabama police rolled up to the Seabreeze restaurant and took Rhonda away, still in her waitressing uniform, they knew quite well that Roland was far from the only person in Rhonda's life who'd complained of, shall we say, stomach trouble. They knew that all eight of her deceased relatives had died in eerily similar ways, suffering from the acute diarrhea and vomiting that were classic symptoms of arsenic poisoning, not to mention the paralyzed limbs. Rhonda was taken to jail, and orders were given to exhume the bodies of her other suspected victims. Roland's sisters, who'd moved out of their house when their father died, heard that their ex-stepmom, who'd never legally been their stepmom, was poisoning their brother, and received the news with a mixture of shock and relief. Moving out when we did probably saved our lives, one of them said. I have no doubt she meant to poison us, too. Immediately after Rhonda's arrest, an editor from the Montgomery Advisor, the paper of nearby Montgomery, Alabama, managed to snag an interview with Rhonda right from jail. He found the murderess with a hard stare in her dark eyes and a tired and sugar-coated voice. She played innocent, telling him, If they say I poisoned anyone, they're wrong. I have never had a touch of poison in my hand in my life. There has never been any in my home. She spoke of her childhood, her five husbands, and her five daughters, saying, I'm a poor woman. I've had more than my share of tragedy. Somebody I loved dying almost every year. She abandoned her, there has never been any poison in my home, rhetoric after three days of pointed interrogation, which finally led to her breaking down. I poisoned them, she told detectives, and went on to describe in detail how she'd fed the fatal doses of ant poison to three of her daughters, two of her husbands, and her mother. Oddly, she wouldn't admit to poisoning Mary Adelaide or Judith, despite the fact that they'd died just as her other three daughters had. The district attorney noted that she was vague when asked about her reasons for killing. She cried three times over the three days of questioning, but her weeping was brief. For the rest of the time, she was calm and cool, never batting an eye, as a state investigator said. In fact, it sounds like the strongest emotion she showed was relief for herself. She told the investigators that she'd been afraid of getting caught for years, and she said, I feel like a cloud of fear has been lifted now that I have been caught. Other than that, investigators noted that she, quote, showed very little emotion when she confessed to the bizarre acts. Some murderers, male or female, show very little emotion during their confessions because they're psychopaths and they don't care about what they've done. But the descriptions of Rhonda Bell seem less psychopathic and more strangely out of touch. A psychopath might be described as icy or callous, but Rhonda was described as vague, a characterization that would follow her for the rest of her life. It was as though her murdering was totally unexamined, something about herself that she'd never bothered to question, the way you might go your whole life never really asking yourself why you hate broccoli but love Brussels sprouts, or why you always touch an airplane three times before flying, or why you prefer men with dark hair. At one point, after Rhonda was getting her mugshot taken, a journalist asked her if she had any motive for the killings. She paused and mumbled, No. No.
Rondo was indicted on six counts of first-degree murder and one charge of assault with intent to murder poor Roland. She entered a half-hearted plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. Meanwhile, her case was spreading all over the country as pulpy detective magazines nicknamed her the Red-Headed Hellcat, a flashy, sexy nickname that had nothing to do with Rhonda's actual personality. In court, she looked nervous, sometimes twisting a handkerchief in her lap or biting her nails. One journalist described her as a tall woman, slightly stooped at the shoulders. She has big-boned features which seem characteristically to reveal an air of sadness, tragedy. It's funny how the more pulpy media and the public heard married five times and immediately pictured some voluptuous nymphomaniac with bouncing curls and sharp red fingernails. The truth of the matter was, you didn't have to be any sort of Marilyn Monroe to snag yourself five husbands. Rhonda's tools were far more accessible to the everyday housewife. Brains and whiskey got her to the altar, and divorce or ant poison freed her from it. Female poisoners tend to kill for quite some time before being detected, and the sheer length of Rhonda's two decades-long murdering spree was making Alabama doctors quite nervous. After all, with five dead little girls and all those husbands dropping like flies, why didn't anyone do something about it? In the doctor's defense, Rhonda would change doctors with each victim and always conveniently failed to mention her family's history of similar deaths. Still, at an annual convention of Alabama doctors, a doctor from Mobile brought up Rhonda's case, telling his colleagues that if they couldn't figure out what was wrong with a patient, they should start asking themselves if perhaps the patient was being poisoned. It is understandable that a physician who devotes his life to relief of suffering should find it hard to conceive of anyone's deliberately causing suffering and death, this doctor said. Yet, realism demands that the physician consider this possibility in all puzzling cases. After all, Roland had been in the hospital for over nine months before people started doing tests on him. If the doctors had considered that poison might be a possibility sooner, perhaps Roland would still have the use of his limbs. The ambitious editor at the Montgomery Advisor who'd scored the jailhouse interview with Rhonda also tracked down her third husband, Talmadge, to ask him how it felt to have a serial killer as an ex. I ain't never seen a shrewder, more smart person in the whole country than Rhonda Bell, Talmadge said. She had a good personality, and that's what gets her by. She ain't no good-looking woman, but she's got personality, and she's smart. I know a crazy person when I see one, and she ain't crazy. The way I figure is, she just likes to see people suffer. What do you call that? Being a sadist? Rhonda's trial began and ended on June 4, 1956. Her not-guilty-by-reason-of-insanity defense was embarrassingly ineffectual. After all, she'd already admitted to six murders, and she certainly didn't act or look insane, and no one could come up with any proof that she hadn't known that murder was wrong for two whole decades. In fact, the weirdest thing she'd done since her arrest was wear two wedding rings. However, in a desperate attempt to prove that Rhonda had killed in a two-decades-long fit of insanity, her defense brought in a psychiatrist who declared her schizophrenic and said that he didn't know what could have possibly killed Claude, despite the fact that the autopsy clearly stated that Claude had been killed by arsenic poisoning. 
No one else seemed to take this psychiatrist very seriously. The judge even had trouble pronouncing the word schizophrenia and mentioned several times that he really didn't know what schizophrenia was. This enraged Rhonda's defense attorney so much that he tried to get a mistrial declared. It didn't work. The prosecution presented a couple of physicians who declared that Rhonda was sane and then proceeded to tear Rhonda's insanity defense apart, noting that the defense psychiatrist hadn't come close to proving that Rhonda met the definition for legal insanity. That is, he hadn't shown that she didn't know right from wrong, nor had he proved that she couldn't stop herself from poisoning Claude. Rhonda's lawyers brought their defense to a limp conclusion by begging the jury, don't kill this crazy woman, send her to prison for as long as you can. In sharp contrast, the prosecution finished with this thundering cry, do your day and give her the chair. What do you say to the poisoning, gentlemen? The jury deliberated for three hours and came back with a verdict, guilty, and a recommended sentence, death in the electric chair. Executing a woman was by no means an everyday thing in Alabama. Only two women in the state had ever received the death penalty before this. Mrs. Earl Dennison, convicted of killing her four-year-old niece with arsenic, and Salina Gilmore, who drunkenly shot a waiter when he asked her to leave a restaurant. Now the bright yellow chair that had embraced both of these women was waiting for Rhonda Bell. When she heard her sentence, she began sobbing. In prison, Rhonda was on her best behavior, hoping that the long process of appeals, requests for extensions, and clemency hearings might lead to a lesser sentence. She busied herself by sewing things for the prison, like a set of drapes and a lovely tablecloth. It was hard to escape the morbid reality of what she'd done, though. For example, when filling out a set of paperwork, she had to write down that she had no dependents. Her execution date was set for July, and then moved back to the following spring, and then set for the fall. Despite all that red-headed hellcat business, the portrait of Rhonda that was emerging in the paper was now of a subdued woman who was either completely self-deluded or truly unable to control her strange love of ending lives. In an exclusive jail interview published on May 26, 1957, a journalist asked yet again why she'd murdered, and Rhonda responded, I don't know, but I hope someone can tell me before I die. It's a big weight on my mind. Those who'd investigated Rhonda had varying theories about why she'd done what she did. Insurance money was perhaps the most cliched motive, but she hadn't really profited enough for that motive to make real sense. She only collected about $200 from each one of her children's deaths. Another theory was that she had a complex of emotional insecurity stemming from her father's abandonment and felt that no one wanted her around, which is why she killed. Yet another theory set forth is that she was, quote, fascinated by the effects of poison, accounting for the lingering methods she employed. Each of these theories seems partially true, but none of them paint a satisfyingly complete picture. Even her defense lawyer was unable to come up with a compelling explanation for what she'd done. 
His stance on Rhonda was that her crimes inherently didn't make sense, that there was no sensical narrative to latch onto, and so the very absence of that sense meant that she was insane. He argued this, again, at a last-ditch clemency hearing that took place in the Alabama governor's office on October 9th. She has killed, and she has confessed killing her own children, he said. Children she loved and took to Sunday school just like any other mother, and yet she killed them. Rhonda shouldn't be executed, he argued. She should be sent to a hospital for further investigations into her mental state. Nonsense, scoffed the prosecution, who had come bearing a statement from the prison matron saying that Rhonda Bell was not only totally sane, but, quote, above average in intelligence, just as her third husband had said. Rhonda's crimes had been, quote, peculiarly vicious, said the prosecution, and if there was ever a reason to execute a woman, it was this. After all, viciousness is murdering people. Peculiar viciousness is murdering people and being unable to explain why. Speaking of peculiar, Rhonda's sister-in-law testified at the hearing that Rhonda Bell was a kind person, a loving mother, and a good neighbor, and the fact that she was also a killer just didn't add up. I was not acquainted with this other person that committed these crimes, the sister-in-law said. The clemency hearing didn't work. On Friday, October 11th, 1957, after a meal of hamburger, mashed potatoes, cinnamon rolls, and coffee, Rhonda Bell was taken to the execution chamber, where Yellow Mama was waiting for her, the bright yellow electric chair painted with the same paint used on the yellow lines of the Alabama highways. Her head was shaved, and she clutched a copy of the New Testament. She was wearing a simple black homemade dress, black shoes, and just one wedding ring. The prison chaplain began reciting Psalm 23 to her. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Rhonda whispered the beautiful lines after him. After she finished, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Tears began pouring down her cheeks. Someone asked her if she had any final words, and she shook her head. Yet again, Rhonda had nothing to say. The executioner flipped the switch, and nothing happened. Rhonda just sat there, strapped in but alive. The chair hadn't been set up properly. Officials made sure all the electrodes were truly in place, and the executioner flipped the switch once again. For 30 seconds... 2,200 volts of electricity poured into Rhonda Bell Martin's body. Eight minutes later, she was pronounced dead. Seven months to the day after her death, the mystery section of the New York Daily News decided that her story just hadn't been pulpy enough. There wasn't enough of an explanation at its core. There were too many unanswered questions. Why did she kill her babies immediately but keep her 11-year-old daughter alive for a year? Why did she divorce two husbands but slaughter two others? 
Why'd she kill her mom? What was the deal with those inconsistent insurance payouts anyway? So, in a piece titled Deadly Lady, the Daily News retold her story. They threw in a couple of jokes, and they even added in some snappy dialogue to paint a portrait of a sassy killer who poisoned people because it scratched an itch. Without even resembling the sultry Matahari, Rhonda Bell succeeded in becoming a femme fatale, declared the article. In the scene where Rhonda poisons George's whiskey, the writer describes how George emptied his glass with a second gulp, pushed it across the table, and said, Gee, that stuff makes a man of you. Same again, honey. The article also claimed that she wore five wedding rings in jail instead of two, a little white lie that made her seem so much more crazier and excessive than she was in real life. The piece went on to attribute quotes to Rhonda like, I always spoil those I love, but something always seems to happen to them. But all that gee whiz honey dialogue was just fluff, because the most notable thing about Rhonda was how much she didn't say. Again and again, she was given a chance to explain herself, and she never took it. When she was arrested, she said, I don't know why you're doing this. There's nothing to it. When she confessed, she was calm and cool, never batting an eye. When asked if she had any motive for the killings, she responded, no, no. When asked again over a year later, she said, I don't know, but I hope someone can tell me before I die. She didn't even have any last words. Perhaps the most telling statement that Rhonda ever made was the note that she left in her cell. It was discovered after she died, it read, At my death, whether it be a natural death or otherwise, I want my body to be given to some scientific institution to be used as they see fit, but especially to see if someone can find out why I committed the crimes I have committed. I can't understand it, for I had no reason whatsoever. There is definitely something wrong. Can't someone find it and save someone else the agony I have been through? The note does seem to reveal a little bit of the old serial killer's narcissism, because she's clearly feeling sorry for herself, what with all that talk about the agony I have been through. But it paints a chilling portrait of the sort of woman Rhonda was, a woman unknowable, even to herself. She killed eight people, and she had no reason whatsoever. After her execution, her remaining relatives ignored her last wish that her body be given over to science. She was never laid out on a cold autopsy table. No one vivisected her brain to find some dark source of pure evil. No one cut open her heart to find the flaw that would have explained her to herself. She was buried in a grave with no flowers, and only three people attended her funeral. That's all for today, folks. Thank you for listening. We are going to take the next couple of weeks off for the holiday season, so I will see you in 2019. Ah! 
And until then, um, again, thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. You can follow me on uh, Criminal Broads on Instagram to see a photo of Rhonda. You can always email me, criminalbroads at gmail.com. And as I mentioned up top, reviews, very much appreciated. Uh, Reviews this month will get you a Criminal Broads postcard. So feel free to go crazy on the review front. Let's see, if you celebrate Christmas, I hope you have an absolutely sparkly, like, idyllic, you know, snow on the tree branches that kind of looks like crystallized sugar type of holiday. You know, I hope you have that anyway. Everyone loves a little crystallized sugar snow. And I hope you all have a wonderful New Year's celebration with all the champagne and sequins that your heart desires. And I hope you find some time to curl up in front of the fire with a good true crime book at some point so you can really be living your best life. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure doing this podcast thing with you. And I will see you in the new year. Bye. What can I do? What can I say? After I've taken the blame. You say you're through. You go your way. But I'll always feel just the same Maybe I'm right Maybe I'm wrong Loving you dear like I do If it's a crime Then I'm guilty Guilty of loving you Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.